Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 41, and my name is Michael Bradley. This episode, we'll be looking at the second storyline from the Superman radio serial. And joining me once again is Charlie Niemeyer. Hey, everybody. How's it going? As I announced in episode 39, Charlie is my new semi-regular co-host and will be coming on each and every episode where we focus on the radio show. And I'm very happy that he's going to be coming on. Can't get enough of me. (laughs) Before we get into the story that we're going to talk about this episode, I had a couple follow-up items from episode 39 that I wanted to touch on. Um... When we were talking about the cast, Charlie mentioned that he thought that Jay Jostin, who voiced Roseanne in Episode 1 and the Professor in Episode 2 of the radio show, might have voiced the Professor in The Underground World, which was the uh, next-to-last of the Fleischer Superman cartoons. Or actually, they were famous studios by then, but anyway. Um, <laughs> Same I, difference. Right. I checked out the episode, and there's no actor credits in the cartoon itself, but according <sighs> to... The Internet Movie Database, it was Jackson Beck that did the voice for the professor. Hmm. Um, that, that well, we all, we all know how good that IMDb is. Right. That, that's what I was getting ready to say. <laughs> I mean, you know, the IMDb is largely um, – anybody can edit it. So, you know, it's been known to be wrong before. So Charlie might be right. I just wanted to put that in there since I said I would uh, look into it. Okay. And, um, as Jay Leno says, that they uh, they check, recheck, and then they double check again before they post it. So yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> and as as you hear this, we are just um, a couple weeks past the 70th anniversary of those Fleischer cartoons, and it's amazing how well they still stand up today. I mean, yeah, there's some um, questionable material in some of the later ones, as far as uh, like the. The content goes, you know, with the... Oh, once they started integrating the war stuff into... Right, that's what I was, yeah, trying to dance around that, but yeah. Um, oh, well, I just ply, ply, plow right on in, yeah. <laughs> they're racist. We'll just yes. come out and say it. They're racist, yeah. but um, but yeah, like, it's just amazing, though, that the animation and still, still, you know, stands up next to cartoons of the day, I think. It's actually better in some cases still. Yeah, oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but the other thing I wanted to uh, follow up on was the sound effects that they used for Superman's flight. Charlie picked up on the fact that the effect changed part of the way through the opening six episodes. The earlier sounds more like a hairdryer, and then the second sound is a refined version with more of a whistling sound. I did re-listen to the episodes, and I think I figured out what Charlie was talking about. Um, oh, good. <laughs> Right. It's it's pretty noticeable when you're listening to it and, and trying to hear it, but I, I never really caught it myself before. The flying sound at the beginning and ending of each episode during the uh, introduction and the outro, you know, the, the up in the sky look part, mm-hmm. is the original hairdryer sounding sound effect. And they also use that in episodes one and two. And then with episode three, they continue to use the hairdryer sound in the opening and closing but the sound effect in the actual show itself has more of the whistle. Uh, and this is a sound effect that you hear in this show when I transition between the segments. I tried to edit in sound clips, but it was kind of difficult 
without just halting the recording because a lot of the uh, flying sounds have dialogue over them and it's it's hard to just isolate one particular sound. Plus the sound effect, it doesn't really sound the same each time because I don't think they just had like a stock recording. As I mentioned, they used it, or the story is that they used two separate recordings, one of a wind tunnel and one of an artillery shell. And I think the sound effect guys just did the uh, mixing live during the recording sessions. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that, that's just me speculating, but it, you know, it... It sounds right. Yeah, it I doesn't think most, sound the same each time, so... From what I've heard, well, of course they were transcribed, but from what I heard, a lot of the stuff just happened live as it was going. Right. And if I can speculate a bit more for a minute, my guess is that the, the hairdryer-like sound is just the wind tunnel. They used that first and then refined it by mixing in the, the artillery shell a little bit later. Because if, if you think about the physics of it, the artillery shell would probably add that whistle that we're hearing in the, the more refined version, I think. And the wind tunnel would sound more like a hairdryer. Yeah, because it sounded really cheap. When the first, I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, that's flying. Right. <laughs> it just sounds like my wife blow drying her hair. But... Yeah. Just, or a sounds more like a uh, like a ship moving mm-hmm. through space than a person flying but exactly but anyway i did want to point it out since we had talked about it quite a bit in episode 39 and i didn't want everyone to think charlie was just hearing things um oh, thank you <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those things i think you have to hear the episodes to really experience it i think this is an audio podcast which lets me edit in clips but still some things you just have to experience with the actual show i think well, thank you for looking that up, because now I don't feel so dumb. <laughs> Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman of the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast covering the adventures of Superman from 1970 to 1986. Join host Charlie Niemeyer at superbronze1970.libson.com. The second storyline from the Superman radio show was only three episodes long. For the first six months of the show or so, All but two of the storylines are six episodes long. The one we are covering this episode is a three-parter, and there's another three-parter in early August. But other than that, they will all be six-parters until we get to late August or early September 1940, and then they start mixing up the the story lengths. But this specific storyline, like I said, is three episodes long, and it aired from February 26th to March 1st, 1940. That puts it starting just a few days after the likely release of Action Comics number 23, which I looked at back in episode 38. The Daily and Sunday newspaper strips were both running stories that we will be looking at in the next two episodes. As I mentioned in episode 39, creative information for the radio show isn't readily accessible. But as this is still early in the show, a good guess is that it was still Bob Maxwell... Duke Duchovny and George Ludlam writing with Frank Chase directing. 
There's no official title that I know of, but in recent years, it's been called The Yellow Mask. When we last saw Superman in his disguise as young Clark Kent, reporter for the Daily Planet, he and his editor, Perry White, had just received a warning telephone message from a mysterious voice, which identified itself as the Yellow Mask. In exactly 24 hours, said the mask, the Daily Planet would be blown to a thousand fragments. Horror-stricken, Kent and his chief stared at each other in the humming office. Then pandemonium. Sirens wailed in the streets. Police searched the building for bombs. Despite the pandemonium at the Daily Planet, we open in the lab of one Professor Sven Dahlgren. The good professor is giving a tour of his lab to Professor Schmidt of Hawthorne University and showing him his many inventions. Apparently, Dahlgren has created a new machine, and since word has gotten out, he's been getting threats, strange phone calls, and unwanted visitors in the middle of the night trying to steal the machine. Dahlgren explains how he has rigged security in the lab and says that he had wanted to keep the invention a secret because there's already too much destruction and bloodshed in the world. Finally done with his lamenting, Dahlgren takes Schmidt into the next room for a demonstration of the invention. He shows him a small machine and explains that it shoots a beam of vibrating infogramma rays, or as we call them in the real world, MacGuffin rays, that can shatter anything they hit into atomic dust. After Dahlgren demonstrates the atomic beam's effectiveness on a glass and a steel ball, Schmidt is astounded. He congratulates Dahlgren on the new invention, saying that he's done him a great service. The new weapon will give him what he always wanted, control of the world. Dahlgren is shocked at this turn of events, as Schmidt loses his accent and reveals that he is not, in fact, Professor Schmidt at all. Dahlgren tells him to get out, but the stranger holds the professor at gunpoint. He explains that he plans on using the new weapon to destroy the Daily Planet and eventually take over the world. Dahlgren calls for help from his lab assistant, Michael, but the stranger grabs the deadly new weapon and makes an escape. Back at the Daily Planet... Perry White finds Clark Kent, who had been helping the police as they unsuccessfully searched the building for a bomb. Perry introduces Clark Kent to Lois Lane before leaving to answer a phone call. Clark and Lois chat, and Lois talks about how completely unimpressed she is with Clark. She doesn't like that Perry sees him as the new Wonder Boy, and goes on to say that she thinks he made up the story about there being a bomb in the building to get attention. Clark tries to convince her otherwise, but has no luck. Clark's superhearing then picks up a sound of an airplane flying low. He takes Lois to the window, but she doesn't hear it and blows him off. As Perry returns, Clark tells him about the plane, but Perry doesn't think it's a big deal either. Perry then gives Lois an assignment to go interview Dahlgren. Apparently they've been trying to interview Dahlgren for a while, but have been denied. But now that his machine has been stolen, he needs their help. Lois is rather annoyed at having to interview the professor, but goes anyway. As Lois leaves, Clark joins Perry in his office, where Perry frets over the bomb. He's skeptical, but worried there might be something to it. However, he doesn't want to evacuate the building for fear that it will make the paper look like a laughingstock if it turns out to be false. Perry then gets another call from Dahlgren, who informs Perry that the thief mentioned something about destroying the newspaper. But before Dahlgren can say any more, the line goes dead. Clark is able to piece together that Dahlgren's machine could be used to destroy the planet building and figures out the thief must be the Yellow Mask. He figures there is no bomb and that the plane he heard earlier must have been getting the lay of the land so that the Yellow Mask could use Dahlgren's machine to make good on his threat. 
As Perry's phone rings again and the secretary tells him Dahlgren's line was cut and they couldn't reconnect the call, Clark runs out of Perry's office. Dashing into a nearby locker room, Clark switches to Superman and leaps out the window, hoping to reach Dahlgren's lab and Lois in time. Awesome. Okay, so, episode 8. It's after 4 p.m. While Superman is flying out to Dr. Dahlgren's, Lois is already there interviewing the good doctor. All the while, their conversation is being monitored. Michael, using a radio relay, contacts the Yellow Mask, bringing him up to speed. Yellow Mask tells him that when the signal comes, he is to close the sliding doors and leave the rest to him, then meet up at the airport. At this point, we turn to Dr. Dahlgren, who is explaining to Lois that the atomic beam apparatus that was stolen is basically useless at this point without the atomic cylinders, all of which are currently secured in a safe inside an inner room, which is secured by a set of massive steel doors. He then explains that he doesn't want anything about his project published until he's certain that it'll, it will only benefit mankind. As he begins to explain how the machine works, we switch to Superman, who is just arriving at Dr. Dahlgren's house. He lands on the roof, switches to Clark, and is heading downstairs when his superhearing picks up a call from Michael to the yellow mask on the radio relay. Michael relays that there has been no change since his previous report, and yellow mask reminds him about the doors. You know the day destroys the night Night divides the day Try to run, try to hide Break on through to the other side Break on through to the Not the band, the actual doors uh, Hoping that Dahlgren can shed some light on the identity of Michael We hear the flying noise indicating that he's decided to fly down the rest of the stairs instead of walking And he knocks on the door And after being let in by Dr. Dahlgren he explains why he's there, all of which is missed by Lois, who then walks in, accusing Clark of horning in on her story. Reviewing the events of the last couple of episodes, they determine that it was indeed the Yellow Mask who stole the beam. We then review again that the beam cannot be fired without the atomic cylinders. The doctor is about to show Clark the steel doors and the safe, but Clark stops him for a second to ask about Michael. And the doctor explains that Michael is the name of his servant. The doctor then heads to the safe in the inner room while Lois chides Clark for leaving his fellow employees to die at the Daily Planet. And when he explains that he was actually sent by Perry, she chides him for going so willingly. Clark then attempts to call the planet and discovers that the phone isn't just out of order, but that the line has been cut. He and Lois put together that someone in the house must have deliberately cut the line and that that person must know about the atomic cylinders. Suddenly, the steel doors shut, locking the doctor inside. Through the door, we can hear that Michael is inside with the doctor and is near the safe, when suddenly there's an explosion inside that even sends Lois reeling. So Clark helps her up and has her call the paper and get the police. And when she leaves, he works on opening the doors. Inside, the doctor is unconscious, which I can't spell. The safe is empty, and there is a hole in the wall. Through a hidden dictaphone, the yellow mask reminds the two men that it is 5.30 and gloats that the yellow mask always keeps his word. Alerted by the explosion, the police soon race to Dahlgren's lab while the yellow mask hides out in a nearby room, waiting for the coast to clear. The yellow mask is delighted when he learns that Michael has grabbed Lois, who he had seen running out of the building. 
The Yellow Mask plans on bringing Lois along as a hostage, and the three soon leave. Back at the lab, Dahlgren revives and wonders how the Yellow Mask knew about the fuel cylinders. Clark breaks to him the sad news that his assistant Michael is working for the Mask. And as the police arrive, Clark takes his leave. Heading to the top of the building, he quickly changes to Superman and leaps off to warn Perry and then find the Yellow Mask. Fifteen minutes to go. Back at the Daily Planet, Perry White gets a call from the Yellow Mask. He tells Perry that he's holding Lois hostage, and if anyone interferes with his plan, it will mean an unpleasant end for Lois. Clark shows up, and Perry tells him about Lois, and Clark responds with equally bad news that the Yellow Mask now has the means to make good on his threat against the Daily Planet. Realizing the situation is dire, Clark tells Perry to call a nearby airfield and warm up a plane. And then, despite Perry's protests, Clark runs out of the office, saying it's their only chance. Once out of sight, Clark changes to Superman, smashes through a window, and launches himself into the air towards the airport. Elsewhere, the Yellow Mask, Michael, and Lois fly towards the Daily Planet. Five minutes to go. The Yellow Mask tells Michael to ready the atomic beam machine. Inside the building, Perry waits nervously, waiting to hear from Clark. Three minutes to go. Back in the sky, Superman trails the plane. Michael and the Yellow Mask spot him, but mistake the flying figure for another plane. While swinging the plane around for another pass by the Daily Planet, the Yellow Mask fires up the atomic beam. With Superman still hot on their trail, the Yellow Mask forces Lois towards the door, and makes good on his promise by shoving Lois out of the plane. Michael then dives the plane towards the Daily Planet building, but before the Yellow Mask can throw the switch to fire the machine, Superman smashes into the plane, causing it to crash. As Lois plummets downward, nearing ever closer to the ground, Superman pours on the speed and snags her mere moments before she hits the ground, and then swoops back into the sky. The next morning at the Daily Planet, Lois recounts her experience to Perry. She remembers being thrown from the plane and falling, but the rest is a blur. Perry tells her that Clark saved them by flying a plane at the last minute, crashing the Yellow Mask's plane, and escaping by parachute, just as Lois did. Lois says she doesn't remember parachuting, but seems to have vague memories that she was saved by a flying man in a red cape. However, Perry laughs it off as a mere delusion. Clark soon enters the office, and Lois leaves, but not before making Clark feel about as welcome as a Mets fan at Yankee Stadium. (laughs) Perry... Perry thanks Clark for what he did and says there was no trace left of the yellow mask or Dahlgren's machine. He then asks Clark about what Lois thinks she saw, reminding him of similar rumors that came up when Clark dealt with the sabotage train, which we talked about last episode. Clark dismisses it as a silly notion, and before they can discuss it further, an office worker alerts Perry of a building on fire and a woman who is trapped on the 20th floor. Clark pleads with Perry to let him cover it, saying that maybe he can help. Perry isn't sure what Clark can do, but agrees anyway, and Clark heads out to cover the story. December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt 
brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. The Tales of the Justice Society of America, every Friday at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Our cast this episode, we've got Bud Collier as Superman and Clark Kent in all three episodes, and Raleigh Bester as Lois Lane. Now, Bester was wife of science fiction and comic writer Alfred Bester. Alfred wasn't writing for DC at this point, and he wouldn't start until mid to late 1941. The majority of his comics work was scripting Green Lantern stories. He is credited with creating Solomon Grundy and is often credited with writing the classic Green Lantern Oath. In brightest day, in blackest night, no evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Lantern's light. A lot of sources say that Alfred Bester wrote Superman stories in the comics too, but if he did, I haven't been able to figure out where. I do know that when the Salkines got the rights to make a Superman movie, that his name was tossed about to write the film, but they wanted to move away from the comic book stuff, so uh, ultimately didn't do it. But uh, that's all Alfred Bester. I will be doing a spotlight on Raleigh Bester next episode, so come back for that for more information on her. Raleigh also did the uh, – she also voiced Miss Smith in Episodes 7 and 9, a character that was voiced by Agnes Moorhead in Episode 2. Miss Smith? Oh, okay. Yeah, Miss Smith. The secretary for Perry. Yeah. I was like, when was Miss Smith? In? But okay. <laughs> and we've also got Julian Noah – as both Perry White and the Yellow Mask, Ned Weaver as Dr. Sven Dahlgren, Arthur Vinton did the phone voice for the Yellow Mask in Episode 9 because the Yellow Mask talks to Perry on the phone and Julian Noah couldn't do both characters at the same time. Oh. Um, I don't know who did the voice of Michael. He sounds to me a little bit like Bud Collier, but I don't think it was him. I, I think it's just a it's kind of a similar tone in the voice. Yeah, I think it was someone else too, but I, I don't know. What I thought was cool about that, though, is uh, Julian Noah, he did a lot better masking his voice when he was voicing Yellow Mask this time than yes. when he was having to voice the conduct, the superintendent of the trains and the chief of police and everything in the last few episodes. I definitely agree. Because yeah. I, I, I couldn't tell that it was different, that it was the same person. Me either. I was much more impressed and a little surprised when I looked at my uh, notes and stuff and realized it was him doing the voice of Yellow Mask because I just hearing the episodes I didn't pick up on it 
Yeah, and Arthur Vinton did a pretty good imitation of him, I thought. <laughs> yeah, and Last the, phone call. the distortion they use for the phone voices, that helped too. Yeah. The When the yellow... I don't know about an episode six. I don't know who did the phone voice of the master there. I, it was probably Vinton because he was in that episode too. Okay. At the end of the episode, you know, where he calls... Oh, yeah. When he calls Perry. That's when he makes the original threat, right? Right, right. And I should have mentioned this last time, but I don't know who the announcer is in these early episodes. The early episodes use a variety of announcers, and they all sound kind of similar to me, and I don't have information on who did any of them, unfortunately. Me either. (laughs) Sorry. uh, Episode 7, it was called Dr. Dahlgren's Atomic Beam Machine. And despite the big cliffhanger from the end of episode 6, this episode picks up 22 hours later, uh, when the bomb was supposed to go off in 24, and begins in a completely different location. So I thought that was kind of weird, but it... Yeah, that that doesn't seem right. Yeah, it just... It's like, well, the planet building's about to explode, so let's go see this doctor guy that we don't even know about. Right, but it it flows okay, because I needed to set that up. Yeah, you know. it works perfect. It's just it's like, and they probably wouldn't have noticed it if they, since they had like a weekend and stuff to come back to it. Right. Yeah. And but if Dahlgren is so worried about people stealing this machine, maybe he shouldn't be so eager to show it off to complete strangers. <laughs> <laughs> and when he does, I was just noticed. If you listen to the sound that you hear when they break the glass and the ball is supposed to turn to dust. Uh huh. Now, it makes sense that with the, what they're trying to the, say, but it doesn't sound like that at all. It just sounds like, well, obviously, it's going to sound. It's not going to sound exactly right because they're not actually doing this. But based on the, I don't know, maybe I'm being too nitpicky, but based on the noise, it definitely sounds like there's bigger chunks of glass and metal in those two breaking things than, than when they turn to dust and disappear. But... That could be a limit oh, of the I see time, what you're too. Saying. It doesn't sound like it's... Yeah, the metal ball makes a, a noise like it's breaking into, like, I don't know, five or six pieces. But mm. then they say, it's disappeared. It's turned to dust. <laughs> and that's like, that is some loud, large pieces of dust. Watch closely what happens to that glass on the edge of the table. Watch. It's, it's amazing. The glass was shattered. Now, watch that small steel ball. Why, it's gone. Vanished. Blown into atomic dust. Well, maybe, maybe the vibrating infragamma rays <laughs> cause a different sound. That could be it, too. <laughs> Sounds like something that's going to turn you into the Hulk. Yeah. Even in 1940, that had to sound completely made up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we have, uh, when they introduced Michael, you know, last episode, or last, the last storyline, we had the big major scene set in Indiana. And now they introduce a guy named Michael, and sure he tends to, uh, he turns out to be evil, but it just—I'm from Indiana, and my name is Michael, so it's just. Ah uh, yes. Yeah. So so we sh- so I need to pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> it's Schmidt, wasn't Schmidt? Right. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Big shock. <laughs> I, I was confused when I first heard it, though. So. I, I guess I make fun of it, but I guess I probably was kind of shocked. Maybe not shocked, but caught unaware the first time I heard this. But now that I, but now that I've gone through these and heard them several times, it's it's less of a surprise. But well, I guess what kind of throws you off too is 
the yellow mask has already made his threat. So yeah, so you wouldn't think that he would still need to, you know, steal a machine that could blow up. Well, you'd think he'd try to procure procure the machine before he made the threat, so that he could yeah, sure exactly. that he could make good on it. Yeah. Or maybe if this was a flashback, but they don't indicate that it's a flashback. No. For all my making fun of it, though, I really did like this opening quite a bit. Um, you know, it was pretty fun, and it probably did catch the kids unaware that this guy talking to Professor Dahlgren isn't who he says he is. You know? Yeah, yeah. And it's very much in line with what I would expect from the comics at this point, where they have people sneaking around and, you know... Stealing of the Stealing things, yeah. And Michael was useless. Granted, we know why later, but he comes in and, like, Mike, they, he's supposed to capture the guy, but he stands there and just says, Why, Doc, you look pale. Right. It's like, go after the guy, doofus. But, oh, well. We learn why later, obviously. Right. But, yeah. Yeah. And uh, then we have the first appearance of Lois Lane in the radio serial. And yeah. right from the outset, Lois is completely uninterested in anything Clark has to say. I mean, he simply can't get a break. No. The first thing she says to him is to rip him apart because Perry likes his work. And it's like, lighten up, lady. (laughs) She did call him a boy wonder. Yes. I don't know where this is in reference to the the first appearance of Robin, but... Um, That issue came out in the beginning of March. March. So this is like right before. Yeah, I want to say March 5th (laughs) is the date. Awesome. But yeah, it was right before the... uh, Detective Comics number. Oh, so see, I didn't copy in yet. Um, but yeah, Lois is a real yes. She's a real witch. Yeah, and um, she she accuses him of making the bomb threat up. <laughs> but Perry is the one that got the call last episode. Yeah, I was thinking that too. So, she called him, or he called him from the same room without looking like he was on the phone. And yeah, obviously, obviously, it's jealousy. I think. And yeah, and, it does match with the comics. Somewhat. Yeah, there she just... In, in the comics, they haven't really gotten into why she hates Clark. It's just... And, uh, well, I guess they haven't by, by this point, but at the beginning, it was just, you know, she hates him. But here, yeah. based on their conversation, I can kind of explain it, because as a woman in the 1940s, she would have had to work very hard to become a top reporter for the Daily Planet. You know, oh, yeah. A major paper. And now she just sees Clark waltz in and basically basically just get a job handed to him. And I can see how that would tick her off. Yeah, that would probably make me mad too. And especially, you know, later on when he tells her to go to interview Dahlgren, Perry says, on your way, girly, which that can be seen as demeaning or as playful banter, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's kind of the uh, – it's just a representation of how women were treated in, in the workplace back then, you know. Because if, if he would have assigned Clark to go cover the story, he wouldn't have said, on your way, boy. You know, right. he would yeah. get out there and do it. So it's just kind of demeaning. But, you know, it could also be taken as playful banter, too. So Exactly. Lois, uh, when, when she's talking to Clark, though, Lois makes a reference to Horace Greeley. Greeley was the founder of the New York Tribune and, and editor of the paper from 1840 to 1870. He was a very influential newspaper editor and, and later a politician. Okay. I knew I'd heard the name before, but I figured if anyone would make it, would fix it, take care of that, now it would be you. So. Yeah, I had to wait an idiot. I'm not going to lie. Uh, uh. <laughs> 
That reminds me. I, I know a lot of obscure stuff, but... Yeah, I meant to ask you this last time, and I forgot. Now, we don't see it as much this time, but we saw a lot of it last time. And you said you work at a newspaper? Yeah. Does um, the stuff you hear, the backgrounds and stuff, is that anything like actually working at a newspaper? Or are they somewhat realistic with, well, like, with their terms and things? Well, the paper I work for is much, much smaller than the, well, the Daily Planet. I mean, I picture the Daily Planet as... Like the biggest paper in the country, basically. Right. And the paper I work for is just a small town newspaper. Yeah. Okay. We have uh, one, two, three reporters. So. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's not at all the same situation. Well, yeah. A lot of times it sounded like the Daily Planet only had three reporters too. So. Well. <laughs> yes, that's all we ever hear of. But. <laughs> or four later on, but yeah, three. But yeah, but I I, re- I, don't, I don't know. I really can't answer that because I just. And I have worked for a bigger paper, but never anything as big as what I picture the Daily Planet as being. So, Oh, well. Anyway. Just edit that out. <laughs> speaking of newspapers, though, I don't understand what Perry meant by this paper has always been tied in with science. Well, because, you know, it's a scientific train thing last time. Not science really. train? Yeah, it's okay. a science train. Next coming Coming this season on PBS, it's the science train. Now I've got the Soul Train theme going in my head. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> oh, you should put that in the background here just to mess with people. Anyway. <laughs> so, what'd you think about Perry? Uh, Perry's decision not to evacuate the building. Okay. Um, at first, I I could understand it, and because you know it just sounds like I mean it sounds like a threat. But you, and they've searched the building. There's no bomb. You can't figure out how they would possibly do it. Right. So I'm okay with that. Later on, I don't want to get too far ahead, but later on when we're in episode nine and there's like three minutes before the – and they know that he's got the atomic machine and everything. I'm, I'm thinking that when Clark is leaving to go get the plane or whatever, they really should have been evacuating at that point <laughs> because with three minutes to spare, Perry's still talking to people inside the newsroom checking the time. Right. Um, so by that point, yes, they should have. I can understand him not doing it at this point because, yeah, it's a threat. They don't know how he could do it. They've checked. They've had the police in there. They've checked for bombs. They didn't find anything. So it sounds like it's a pointless threat. I'm sure pointless bomb threats happen all the time, especially with a newspaper that you know <laughs> is supposed to be this big and influential. Right. If they can deal with a, they deal with the big train story. I'm sure they had mob stuff going that happened when they were. In the 20s, we just don't know about it because Superman wasn't there yet. So they probably have mob stuff now, or at this point anyway. So I could, I, I would think that they probably get threats a lot. So we probably just kind of – they checked. There was no bomb, so I'm fine with it. It's once they found out about the atomic machine and that the yellow mask had it and the cylinders, that's when he should have evacuated the planet. And he didn't, and I thought that was dumb. See, I think he should have evacuated – here, but maybe that's my contemporary mindset too. You know, after nine eleven, and, and we're living in a much more the, the, the more threat of terrorism than we have today. And yeah, I can see what you're saying too, but I, I don't know. Well, keep in mind too that this is before even Pearl Harbor, right? So yeah, we're still over a year and a half from Pearl Harbor. Yeah, yeah. Now even before nine eleven, though, I could uh, I would I could see them evacuating. And then having the bomb squad come in and check the building, but even then, 
I don't know how they think in these back in these days, and I don't know how they think when you're the editor of a major newspaper that's supposed to be a metropolitan daily. Right. Because if it took 22 hours <laughs> to check the building, that's a whole day's worth of news that you're skipped out on. Right. Now, granted, you had a bomb threat, <laughs> but readers are—I mean, some some readers are going to be aren't going to be worried about that. They're just going to be like, "Why isn't there a newspaper?" Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I can understand. That I, at this early point, I can understand it, but I don't know. I can see your point too. But later, though, too, when he's only got three minutes to go, you know, trying to evacuate the building then would cause a mass panic. Right. Well, so I can, under- with- I can maybe more understand not doing it there. Yeah. For fear of you know people getting trampled and all that, but at, at the same time, yeah, he should have evacuated then too. Or Maybe at least tried. I would think if Clark no, Clark had it figured out uh before he even left. Right. In episode seven, right? Uh that he before he even left to go to the doctors that if they used the atomic beam machine they could destroy the building. At that point he probably should have been evacuating. Right. And they've got At that point it was less nice than two work. hours, but still plenty of time to evacuate exactly. the building. Oh, uh, the last thing. Um, I did like, though, <laughs> after we've just had that conversation, I liked how Perry was also trying to keep things going business as usual because even though they've got this threat and there's only two hours to go, he's sending Lois out on, to cover a story. Right. And um, I thought that was interesting because, you know, if the building doesn't blow up, they've still got a paper to put out. Right. And uh, also, um, I thought it was interesting that um, Perry is like he's got no excuse me at one point Perry's got no idea what's going on they get a call from the professor he explains that the, his machine's been stolen and some the, the someone's uh, the person that stole it says something about taking out a newspaper and Perry's confused and he's got no clue what's going on Clark says I think it was stolen by the yellow mask and he plans to use the machine to take <laughs> out the planet and Perry's like Perry's like Clark I think you're right <laughs> it's like that was easy <laughs> Put two and two together really fast there, didn't he? I know. I wish all people were as easy to convince of things like that, although then it would cause trouble anyway. But I wish it was always that easy to convince people when necessary. Yeah. But he couldn't – actually, by that point, they were probably running in the end of the episode, so they probably couldn't be like, I don't know, Clark. You're going to have to convince me a little more than that. You know? How did How did Clark know the machine could be used to destroy – because he hadn't met with the professor at that point. Uh, didn't he say? Didn't um, the professor say something about it on the phone? About how he's got a machine that could? I don't know. Possibly. I'm reading over my synopsis. Well, he's. I don't think he had to because um, before he got cut off, the doctor did say that something about he was going to use his machine to destroy a newspaper building. Oh, so okay. Oh, that's if, right. Yeah, okay. Even if Clark didn't even know what the machine was, if the doctor had a machine that could destroy the building and the yellow mask has it and he already knows the threat he might have been Kryptonian he would have a super brain that would allow him to put two and two together faster okay alright good point thank you so our next episode is called Atomic Fuel Cylinder Stolen or Simply Fuel as we begin we once a ha- we, we, we once again have Dahlgren going on and on and on to Lois about the machine 
that he doesn't want anyone to know about. You know, he, he even goes so far as to explain how it works, the power source, the security measures, but also tells her very specifically that he doesn't want the secret published. Not yet, anyway. But he's talking to a reporter, so it's a pretty <laughs> safe bet she's going to write an article. Especially one that's still trying to make her name for herself. Right. And trying to get up there with the big guys. So, yeah, that was dumb. But if she's pretty, I can understand it. But they've been making lots of use of Superman's superhearing in the show so far. He's used yes. it, uh, I don't know, three or four times, and it's just we're on episode eight. <laughs> and the, only the seventh with Superman, so. This is one of the few times, though, he hasn't used it to eavesdrop on a phone call. This time he's using it, he can hear the radio relay. Same thing. Well, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, yeah. He's in a different room, so I guess they've expanded on the distance a little bit. Right. He's usually standing right next to, oh no, no, in the first step, in the second episode, he was in the other room. So never mind. <laughs> and we have Lois tearing into Clark again, this time for running out of the planet like a rat. <laughs> She's just looking for reasons to hate him, I think, at this point. And then when he has a good excuse for it, then she says, well, I bet he didn't have to convince you much. So it's like, <laughs> you can't win, Clark. Just give up, man. Yeah. Well. Are your worries about being blown sky high quite late to rest, Mr. Kent? You thought the paper would be blown up tonight, didn't you? You know I did. And yet you take the first chance you get to run out like a rat and leave what? the rest of them there to face whatever happens. Or, oh, now look here. Mr. White sent me out on this assignment. Yeah, I bet he didn't have to urge you much. Oh, don't think that about me, Lois, please. I can stand freshness and amazing luck and even boasting, but not cowardice, Mr. Kent. I, maybe, I don't know. Maybe her excuse this time does feel a little more justified even though we the listeners know it's not true. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like we talked about, Perry didn't want to evacuate the building. So, right. yeah. Yeah, it, he's evacuated. What, what What else would Clark do? Right. All he'd do is run outside. So <laughs> it's not like he can save the... Well, he does, but it's not like he could just, by being there, possibly save the planet without knowing what's going on. So. Yeah. And Clark actually seems a little hurt by her accusations, too. So I, I thought I like that little, uh, nice little bit of acting there by Bud Collier. Yeah, he had his feelings hurt. Poor guy. Mm-hmm. I know, that makes you cry. Speaking of Lois, I thought her acting at times was a bit overly dramatic. Just for me, it's like... You mean the actress's yeah, best yeah. acting or Lois's yeah. dialogue and whatnot? Uh, yeah, the acting of the dialogue. Okay. Because it's like all he says is... Watch this. And it's doors sliding out. Now, granted, we've seen doors sliding out these days. I don't know how uncommon it was back then. But she's like, why? My doctor, it's it's doors coming out of the wall. Yeah. And it's like, really? <laughs> you could just say, well, it's doors coming out of the wall. And then it would that would work. But she makes it sound like the wall, the doors are coming out of the wall and attacking at them. And it's like, no, <laughs> that's not happening. And then, you know, she just, she, it's just a little over dramatic about stuff. She's either really mad, really angry and mean, or she's like really scared or something or shocked. And it was just a little too much. I thought she's either like, like you said, very angry and mean, or she's the very stereotypical woman who, can't handle anything without freaking out yeah exactly exactly it's like stereotypical yeah. by hollywood writing standards in the yes. 40s not real life i mean to clarify yeah i mean lois i mean clark notices the phone line's been cut she's like she go, literally goes she's like i think the phone line's been cut she's like what do you mean like normal 
Yeah. It's like, look, it goes slack. And look, here's the wire. It's been cut. She goes, but, but don't just stand there. What does it mean? And it's like, come on. <laughs> ah, figure things out, woman. But yeah. So when Clark broke through the steel doors to rescue Dahlgren, do you think he changed to Superman first or do you think he just did it? Uh, I don't know. They don't say he did. And but he switches his voice. Yeah. So it's hard to tell. I personally think that, uh, and I actually have a note about this too, so it works very well. Um, I actually think that since in the at least as far as the radio show goes, and back then the comics too, Clark was the disguise. I could totally see him just dropping the Clark voice because he's he can be himself now because right. <laughs> no one can see him. So I'm thinking he didn't change. Uh, he just ripped the stuff out and hoped it didn't rip his suit. And then um, then by the time that the doctor woke up, he just switched his voice back. Okay. Took on the persona again. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to tell on, on some of this because we don't have the visuals. So yeah. it's, you know, if this was a, a comic book or a, you know, a cartoon or a, a live action thing. <laughs> There'd be no guessing because we'd right. see it. Right. That, and that brings up a point earlier because uh, Clark – okay, Superman lands on the roof. They don't say it, but I'm guessing he switches to Clark because he's supposed to be. And he's walking down the stairs that I guess are outside the building when he hears the radio relay. And once that's done, you hear the flying sound. Like instead of going down the rest of the stairs, he's just going to fly down. Huh. So I guess – did he switch again and fly down and then switch back or <laughs> I don't know. Not, it doesn't help. Of course, it's also early in the series too. I'm sure they get right. better at that later on, but yeah, they, yeah. Cause they don't usually have to deal with that. I'm sure <laughs> when they're dealing with these, well, maybe Lone Ranger was probably around by this point, but anyway, yeah. there isn't, there is a scene in an upcoming episode. I don't remember. Uh, I mean, I remember which storyline it's in, but I don't, don't know when we'll be covering it, but uh, him and Clark and Lois go to uh, find a uh, scientist in a house, and then when they when they get to the house, the house is all uh, boarded up and whatnot. So Clark leaves Lois in the car, goes over to inspect the gate, and they actually say that he changes to Superman, tears the thing apart, and then switches back to Clark. <laughs> so we'll be covering that in a, in a few episodes. But... Awesome. Yeah. That seems pointless, especially if no one could see him. But yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, our our final episode is called "Threat to the Daily Planet." Oh, wait a minute, oh, I have sorry. one more note. Okay. Uh, okay, episode eight. It starts off at four o'clock p.m. Right. It ends at five thirty. Right. That is a awful short time for an hour and a half. Everything seems to happen one right after the other. It seems like we're getting cuts directly. That or or it actually took Superman an hour to fly out. Um, I kind it's of... possible, but I don't know if he can fly ninety miles an hour, which we learned before. <laughs> it seems a little crazy that it would take you an hour to get out there because everything. Right. Once you get past once once Superman lands at the house, it all is pretty much just one scene. So it just seemed a little weird. That's I mean that's a. That's a very short hour and a half. There, there could have been some time between the end of last episode and the beginning of this one because it seemed like Lois, Lois just left at the end of the episode of episode right. seven, and she had already been there for a little bit. 
when episode eight started because they were already in the middle of their conversation. Well, you're so, right. But but yeah, you're right. An hour and a half seems a bit. And the narrator did say at the beginning, it's after 4 p.m. He said it right at the beginning of episode eight. Okay. Hmm. So that's why I was confused. Anyway, I just, I noticed that and it's like, I mean, yeah. And we get that it's after 4 p.m. at the beginning and then no one mentions the time until right at the end when the yellow mask says that it's half past five. Right. Because he's too cool to say it's 5.30. (laughs) Some of that stuff we may just have to kind of get used to, though. Yeah. Until they work on the pacing more. Yeah. Because, like I I was thinking, I mean, it it seems weird, but it also makes sense considering we don't know how much time was in that second episode between him landing and (laughs) going to the Daily Planet for the first time, since he seems to know so much about Earth by the time he actually starts, you know, meets up with Perry White. Right. Who knows? Anyway, our final episode is called Threat to the Daily Planet. And I, the opening narration is long on this episode. The narrator goes <laughs> on for well over a minute. There's a lot of stuff happening in those two episodes. <laughs> I guess. When Clark runs out of the office to go to the airfield, Perry comments, You can't fly, which is less subtle than the similar gag they used between the the wolf and Kino. In the first mm-hmm. storyline, but it's I, I still got a laugh out of it. And I love how they talk. I can and I will. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> well, I noticed um, in this episode, we've had Michael talking a little more. And he's actually, to me, sounds like the guy from the scariest police chases show that you see on Spike TV sometimes. I've never seen that. Oh, you've got to watch it. Those are kind of cool. But, um, yeah, I don't think it's him um, because the guy is uh, – too young to have been old enough to do radio shows back in the forties. Yes, but uh, he sounds an awful like an awful lot like him. I don't know. Hmm. Um, I guess Clark, now. See this this note plays into a deviation that you and I have with our thought about the episode. And I thought, even with the way the uh, Superman was talking and the narrator was going, I thought Clark flew a Superman out to the airfield, got a plane and flew it back to the Daily Planet and smashed it into the Yellow Mask's plane. And in your huh. recap, you said it was Superman himself. And so... Well, you might be right, because I I didn't make a note about it because I didn't want to sound like I was being nitpicky, but I wondered how the Yellow Mask and uh, Michael kept looking back and seeing Superman but thinking it was a plane. Mm-hmm. Unless it was really you know foggy or hazy. But you might be right, Clark flew to the airport and then went up in a plane as Clark especially especially since he was Perry was supposed to be warming making sure they have a plane warmed up for him right it would be hard to explain not getting to the airfield but saving the planet if he didn't have the plane I don't know <laughs> but yeah I thought it was I thought he was because I could have sworn and I haven't listened to it since I well obviously because we're recording I don't want to listen to it while we're recording but I could have sworn that he said something about how he crashed the planes into each other and got out just in time at the end of the episode Perry tells Lois that Clark went up in a plane smashed the yellow mask plane and then parachuted down right but then apparently he also didn't see Superman fly down and catch Lois either, so right. <laughs> can't go too much about by that. So I don't know. It it mm. just seemed to me like he actually flew up a plane. I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> I, 
That's this weird. is why we've got. It makes sense th- now that you explain it, but I, I didn't pick up on that when I listened to the episode. So I will have to. Either way, you know, he destroyed the yellow mask. So, and I, I've counted that. That's so. That's two more on the radio kill count. I don't know if he's killed anyone in the first episodes. No, so, he didn't. So, so this is two. Just the wolf in the kino. The kino. Wolf in the kino. <laughs> so yeah. So he's he's up to two. And it's not a big deal yet. The yellow mask comes back, though. Spoiler. <sighs> okay, so it's one. <laughs> <laughs> as far as the audience knows, it's two. So, yeah, it's good enough yeah. for me. Uh, but Lois has been in three episodes already, and she's already been kidnapped by the villain and nearly killed. <laughs> Way to go, Lois. Yeah. And uh, let's see. I had – oh, speaking of the whole plane, I thought it was interesting – Especially considering our little discrepancy there, uh, I thought it was, I was wondering if Clark was using the plane to maintain his secrecy because no one's supposed to know about Superman, and trying to stop a plane in the middle of a city could draw some attention, as we've seen in later incarnations. Right. Um, or it's because in the as far as the radio show goes, he's not quite strong enough to actually take down a plane. Even though, even in one of the first Superman, I think it was what, issue action two, maybe, he went against the plane and took it down. Yeah. That, but that goes in my note with me thinking that he's used the plane, too, so I don't know. Mm. I'm going to have to re-listen to, the, to that end episode again and see. I, I kind of, now that we talk about it and I think about it, I think you're right. I think he did fly up as Clark in the airplane. Because otherwise it wouldn't make any sense for him to say, warm up the plane and then not show up at the airport. Right. And so, I think he got uh, – Clark gets back to the Daily Planet with, what, 15 minutes left? I think it said three minutes to go. No, uh, 15 minutes to go. Perry White gets a call. Clark shows up, and then he run, leaves. Right. And heads towards the airport. Right. And then he doesn't show up in the plane until there's like three minutes left. Or he doesn't show up again until three minutes left. If Clark was just going to fly, he'd be there already. Right. Hmm. This is why I have Charlie on, folks. He picks up on stuff that I miss. Yeah, see, it's it's good to do that because that way you have two different. You know, one right. is one of us is bound to catch what the other one misses. Hopefully, unless we're both. Mm. I wonder if we'll have more of that in the future, though, where we have different takes on the scene. Yeah, I think it'd be actually, pretty straightforward as early as this is in in you know radio history and storytelling, but. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you know, it's also interesting because the first few times I've listened to this episode, I've been confused as to what's been going on, and I don't know why. How and so? I don't, well, it just seems like a lot of stuff goes on all at once. Lois gets thrown out, and you you get yeah. sound effects, then dialogue, so you don't know it. So it's like, it's like, why is Clark flying a plane, and why? <laughs> and I, you know, at the time, I could the first few times I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that Clark would w- literally be crashing a plane into another plane, and you know all that stuff. It, 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 I don't know. Usually they have they've been having so much dialogue. Like, I'm gonna rip the door just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Here's the edge. Just yeah. pop, I'm just gonna pull the door, and this is just like you're basically going on sound effects in an audio medium, and it's kind of hard. <laughs> but, yeah, that was kind of the one complaint I had about this story is that. They spent a lot of time in the first two episodes, seven and eight, setting things up. Episode eight was pretty much they've they've didn't advance the plot much at all in episode eight. 
because a lot of that was spent recapping what had happened in episode seven and reminding us twice about the atomic cylinders which right kind of let you know i think something's going to happen with that yeah and then by the time you get to episode nine he crashes the plane and saves lois all within about a minute so Mm. i'd I'd like a little less setup and more time spent on superman actually you know wrapping up the story it didn't really hamper my enjoyment of it but and i think pacing and and things like that will get better as we go because they're still getting used to things at this point so i'm not going to be too hard on it but it, it was my probably my biggest complaint about the story. Now, were they always wanting to end a story on a Friday? It seems that way because, like I said, they're all – up until we get to you know, September 1940 or late August, they're all three- and six-parters, and it was airing three times a week. Well, yeah, that's because it, it would make sense and, that maybe they had enough story to go for four, <laughs> but then they were like, "Well, if we do that, we end it on a Monday. That's not going to work." So we I have. Don't know. I think they could have done this in two. To be honest with you. Yeah, although, well, the first two, it seemed like they. I think the second one moved things enough because I mean, granted, it was kind of drawn out, but I mean, it did move things. Now we did find out about Michael. And we did find out about the atomic cylinders, but you're right; it was more recap. So it's like they did a lot of padding. So, yeah, I guess they, we could have had it in two, or we could have had less happen in two that dealt with. I mean, you probably could have gotten up to the Lois being kidnapped and the yellow mask is heading up in a plane. Right. Fifteen minutes to go. Ken Clark save the Daily Planet and all this other and save Lois and all this other stuff. So yeah, it's it's like they move the cliffhanger. They put too much padding into put the cliffhanger in the little bit of the wrong spot. And then we're like, oh crap, we got <laughs> we got twelve minutes to finish the show. Let's do this. <laughs> I'm looking at my list of storylines. The first one that isn't um, a full, you know, like two or three weeks doesn't come until the five million dollar gold heist, which is in December. Of 1940, so like for the first, and how many parts is that? That would be an eight-parter. Oh, so it would be. Um, did they did they change the? Did they change how often it was going on the radio? I don't think so. At that point, I think it was still three days a week up until 1942. I'll have to look into that more, but I'm pretty sure it was three days a week until 1942. Cause that'd be interesting if maybe they jumped it up to four. That would still be two weeks, and, mm-hmm. or week, then, or even then, daily. But then the next storyline after that is fourteen parts. But good lord! So, <laughs> yeah. The, well, it's kind of like the newspaper strip too. They they were always changing how many right strips. So, right. Maybe it just depends on the story and if they can get it to fit that. Yeah. Yeah. And really, I think that's. That's one of the uh, – I, I mentioned this in an earlier episode, but that's one of the benefits of having the newspaper serial is if you want to take 40 strips to tell a story, you can. If you have one that can be told in 10 strips, you can't. You know, exactly. With the comics, you're stuck with that 13-page space. Right. And we've seen Siegel having to pad things out or, or cram things in just to get everything he wanted to tell. But with the newspapers, you don't have that problem. Heck, that even comes up later in this. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about issues from the 70s, and you can tell there's places where literally they're throwing in thing, uh, like a full page or even two because that really are pointless to the story, but they just need it because they don't have enough space. They don't have enough ads to cover that space or whatever, right. or letters pages. Yeah. 
Speaking of comics, though, we, we talked about last time how the story with the trains was similar to a story from the comics. Well, in Superman number four, there was a story that involved a scientist creating an earthquake machine that was used to destroy buildings, which is different from this story, but kind of similar in that you've got a machine that can destroy huge buildings. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Good point. We, uh, you, you asked me last time how I pictured Superman mm-hmm. when I listened to these. How do you picture the yellow mask? Do you, uh, do you have a visual in your head for him? Actually, yeah, a little bit. It's uh, <laughs> it's a little weird, but basically, my ver- uh, what I picture for the yellow mask is basically um, the uh, the what, that sixties ep- uh, show the the Green Hornet, mm-hmm. but that he's got a yellow mask on instead of the green hornet mask. That's exactly how I picture him. <laughs> really? <laughs> With the hat and the coat and everything? The trench coat and the fedora, yep. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's what I see. Only the mask that I picture comes over his, like the lower half of his face rather than oh, okay. his eyes. Yeah, more like a okay. bandana, I guess you would say. That, that makes sense. It's the 30s after, or the 40s after all. Yeah, but still he's a very... Uh, gangster type in it. More of a costume than the comic book villains to this point, but still kind of a gangster type variety villain. Mm-hmm. There's not really much difference, though, between the Yellow Mask and the Wolf. You know, they're both... The Yellow Mask seems more menacing and forceful to me, but they're basically the same. You've got the bad guy with the flunky. And I know we'll be but... getting more diversity in the villains in future episodes, though. I still like the Yellow Mask, though. Yeah, he's cool. And he's... He... While he seems the same, he still it was still a pretty big threat. Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, he literally almost took out the Daily Planet. And killed Lois. Mm-hmm, which only happens every... Well, that happens often, but still. But he didn't get away with it, thanks to Superman. Wink. Yay! <laughs> yeah. Turn to exactly. the camera. Wink. <laughs> dun, 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 See, dun. We, did you have any more, more thoughts on Lois? Just in general here or in comparison to the comics? Well, again, at the end of the episode, it was, I mean, Clark, well, it actually affects Perry too, but Clark Kent just saved the Daily Planet by flying his plane, and maybe, into another plane and also, help, uh, you know, kind of saved Lois. Yeah. Lois still doesn't like him. <laughs> right. Still just walks out like, oh, hey, and leaves the room. And Perry says, thank you. But then we go right into the next story. Um, I would think if this had happened in real life, Clark would have gotten some kind of accommodation of some kind, an award or, I don't know, something besides, okay, Clark. Or at least Clark, make a bigger yeah. deal out of it than just another day at the office. Yeah. yeah. It's like the next day, hey, Mr. White, hey, Clark, thanks again for doing that, by the way. Um, I got a story for you. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no big deal. <laughs> yeah. In real life, something better would have happened for him. Right. And – I thought it was interesting that White, once again, after after just laughing off Lois's sight of or thinking she saw a guy in a red cape, she said he was just like, oh, yeah, obviously you're delusional. She leaves. Clark comes in. OK, so Lois said she saw a guy in a red cape. And after all that other stuff, what do you make of it, Clark? And it's like, <laughs> if you didn't believe her, why do you all of a sudden possibly believe her? It just Well, I think he – Thinks there might be something to it, but dismisses it in his head as a ridiculous notion, but yet still kind of has that gut instinct that there might be something to it. Mm -hmm. He just doesn't want to admit it to Lois, but yet with Clark, 
you know, they, they had talked about it in the last storyline since Clark had dealt with the train incident. That's a good point. And he seems to really be taking Clark into his confidence, too. In Episode 7, you know, they were, after Lois went to cover the, or to uh, talk to Dahlgren, he brought Clark into his office and they were talking about the bomb threat. And, and here they're just hanging out in his office again. So it, it yeah. seems like for someone who was just hired at the paper, they've really become... He's really taking Clark as someone he can talk to. Yeah, it's definitely his, uh, like, a close confidant now. Yeah, and part of that's just because of the exposition they need to get out. Yeah, because, yeah. But it's like he does that one story, and he's closer to Clark than just about any other reporter at the Daily Planet. Well, of course, we don't see how he is with the other reporters, but when Clark's not there, usually either it seems Perry's out in the city room or he's by himself in the office. Right. So... If you're interested in hearing these episodes, all three episodes were included in that Radio Spirits Smithsonian box set that I mentioned in episode 39. That was, It was released in, on CD and cassette in the mid-90s. And you can download all the episodes at a variety of places across the internet because they're all in public domain. And I highly recommend that you just hunt those out and, and download them that way rather than buying them because... It's a waste of money to buy them. Yeah. You can get them for free. So, and not even necessarily better quality because the people you that pay for it don't even clear it up that much. You right. can only do so much when the audio was sixty or seventy years old. Right, and we're going to get to some episodes down the road where the the audio is is really oh, shoddy. Yeah, but. yeah. I think the first place I notice it is uh, right around episode I think twenty eight, or the first episode after that. Uh, Smithsonian CD set. Right. The first one with Jim. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Spoiler. Jimmy from last ep- from last story. Yeah, from he com- when he, he comes he, back. He comes back. Wow. Yeah, it's awesome. And this time, the prof- his professor uncle father person turns into a woman, and it's weird. Wow. Does he run a, a cab protective racket? He does. Hmm. You should see it. Tries it's pretty take, cool. Tries to take over the world with faulty subway schemes and. <laughs> Yeah, in, in, a, in a ship liner. Because uh, boats rule the world. I'm the king of the Superman.libsyn.com. Every legend has a beginning. 
Join David Ellis and Amy Morgan as they access 2099 Bitmapped, a bi-weekly podcast exploring the world of Marvel 2099 through reviews and discussions. Download 2099 Bitmapped at www.tfradio.net. Charlie, I want to thank you for coming on. Oh, hey, no problem. Thanks for having me on again. This was fun. I'm, I'm really enjoying this. I can't wait for the next one. And it's a little shorter this time because. <laughs> yeah, that was nice. I only had to write up notes for. I mean, I only had to do a synopsis for one episode. That was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> next episode, I'll be by myself again, and we'll be looking at the twelfth storyline from the Daily Newspaper strip, which is the finale of the Superman at War trilogy. Charlie will be back in episode forty-four for the next batch of episodes but until then Charlie why don't you tell them where they can find your websites alright um, or your podcasts I'm sorry yeah that's alright um, I've got one well I've got one at um, a new one I'm starting up which well I, I might have there might be an episode of it out by the time this episode comes out but um, I've, st- I've got a new podcast that I'm starting with Isaac Frisbee called Podcast of Justice and uh, that is at podcastofjustice.blogspot.com where we're going to be covering all of the adventures of the Justice League from the beginning and the first episode that hopefully will be out in early October and then uh, my other show is Superman in the Bronze Age where I'm by myself with occasional guests and uh, I I cover Superman in the Bronze Age who would have thought and uh, that's at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com or superbronze1970.lipson.com and then, of course, you can also find those at Superman – or the Superman one is also at the supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And uh, like Michael's show, uh, Steve Yunus post, also posts new episodes of my show at the supermanhomepage.com. So you can follow along at one of those two places. Plus, it's on iTunes. they're both going to be on iTunes, and I have Facebook posts. So Check them out. Yes, please do. Pretty much everything you need to know about this show can be – and links to Charlie's shows – can be found at greatcrypton.com. At the site, you'll find show notes for this and all episodes, as well as links to downloads for back episodes. If you want to subscribe to the show, the site will also give you the RSS feed as well as the iTunes link. If you use iTunes, any and all iTunes reviews are welcomed and appreciated. This show's site will also give you the link to the show's Facebook and Twitter pages. If you like the show on either network, you'll get updates on your wall whenever I have new episodes or other show-related things to share, and you can also send feedback through those and correspond with me directly. Or if you're more of an email-type person, feel free to drop me an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. And I also invite you to check out the Superman homepage as well as the Superman Podcast Network. Not only are updates posted on both sites whenever I have a new episodes, but both sites have all kinds of other awesome Superman content for you while you're waiting for new episodes of the show. And since the show is now back to weekly, rather than bi-weekly, that wait will be a little longer. But there's plenty of stuff on both sites to keep you busy, so be sure to check them out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can get through a whole week. There's almost – on the podcast network, there's almost a new episode of something every day, I think. Yeah, and sometimes two. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. But as always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster in his copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the thrilling adventures of Superman, folks, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye.
Bye, everybody.